following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to take just a brief moment to remind ourselves as we're thinking about these psalms and as we're thinking ahead to the coming Messiah about what Advent is, is all about. I know for some, uh, some younger members of my family, the opportunity to sing Christmas carols in church is perhaps the most exciting thing about Advent. Uh, what is it, though, that Advent is all about? What are we here for? Advent... Advent is all about waiting. It's all about waiting and being expectant people. I wanted to read, uh, this is a bit longer than some quotes that I might uh, read, but I wanted to read this beautiful description of the heart of Advent uh, from some folks at the Gospel Coalition. And they say this about Advent. Advent means coming. It's a time for us to celebrate the first coming of Christ, but also to anticipate his return. When we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel, we're not taking some sentimental journey back in time. We're reminding each other of God's faithfulness in the past, and we're expressing our own longing for Jesus to come, to put an end to injustice, hatred, sin, and fear. So the season of Advent is an opportunity for us to reorient our thinking to corporately as a church express our fervent hope in the second coming of Christ. For our Lord wants us to be an expectant people. Advent stirs our heart for the return of our King. So we reenact the yearning of those Old Testament saints who long to see the Messiah, and in doing so, we let the Spirit of God stir our hearts in anticipation of our own final deliverance and awaiting Christ's promise to make all things new. That's what we're doing here at Advent. It's it's a time of waiting, of expecting, of preparing, of eagerly hoping, of looking ahead that defines our hearts and our minds at this time. And I think as we think about this attitude of expecting and, and waiting a coming king, there's few psalms that could better define and guide our hearts than Psalm 2, which is what we want to look at. So if you would take your Bibles and open to Psalm 2, And read with me from God's word. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, God, King, great faithful fulfiller of your promises, pray that you would guide our hearts as we look at your word tonight to remember your promises, to remember how you have been faithful, and so be strengthened in heart to look to your coming and to your fulfillment of all that you have promised to your people, to the glory of your name. Amen. Psalm 2 is such a triumphant picture of God's reign in Zion through his king. It's such, a, it's such a full, dominant picture of God's sovereign power and victory over his enemies. And because of that, it's not surprising that Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Psalm 2 is, is quoted in Acts at least two times, twice in Hebrews, and at least three different times it's referenced in, in Revelation. And the New Testament continually draws on this psalm as a picture of Christ, the Son of God, the one who would come, who would then rule over God's people and break the rod of his enemies. But if you think about the psalm, it's this dominant picture of Christ's victory, of of God's victory through his Son, his King, over his enemies. But but if you think about the psalm, and and remember, this, this psalm was written... Obviously, when, when what it's talking about was not yet a reality, the, the author of this psalm would not look out to see the nations broken with a rod of iron. The, the author of this psalm would not look out to see the perfect final Son of God ruling in Zion with the enemies scattered. And so this psalm expresses this tension. This is the picture of God's king, and yet the reality, the perfect fulfillment the, 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 the final picture, as, as uh, the New Testament brings out, fulfilled in Christ had not yet happened. It, it fits this theme of waiting, expecting, looking for this perfect fulfillment, these promises of God in a time in which they've not yet been fulfilled. So this is a perfect psalm for our Advent season. Well, I want to look at the psalm in, in order. It's laid out very clearly in a progression of four stanzas. I want to look at each of these four stanzas in turn. The first stanza, verses 1 through 3, and the psalmist is the one speaking in this stanza, and we'll want to pay attention to who's speaking in each of these stanzas, but it's the psalmist here in, in verses 1 through 3, as, as the psalmist summarizes the, the efforts, the words, the plots of the nations of the earth. The nations are gathered, they're raging, they're plotting. The psalmist gives us this picture of the kings of earth coming together, gathering in this this council and conspiring together to set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. The description here sort of reminds me of a scene from from childhood. I can I can picture several several young boys in our neighborhood and they were rather disgruntled at the bossiness of one of the older brothers. I can picture them gathered behind a woodshed 
and sort of plotting what they're going to do to this older brother to let him know what they really think about his rule and his bossiness over them. That's, that's the sort of picture I get from these nations here. Nations gathered plotting. Not nations who are gathered plotting some great plan that will effectively take over the world, but, but small, pitiful nations gathered plotting and raging against the authority of God. This is certainly a picture that history could verify. The nations certainly raged against God's people in Israel. Assyria, Babylon took Israel captive. The Seleucid rulers of the second century BC desecrated the temple. They forced God's people to break the Mosaic laws, to to eat pigs, to sacrifice uh, unholy animals on their altars. The Romans overran the country and brought it under their rule. And so from the standpoint of Israelites, from the standpoint of God's Old Testament people waiting for their king, the nations certainly seemed to be raging rather successfully against them as they awaited for this anointed king who would be set up on Zion. And of course, the church is really in, in, in no different position today. The church too can look out and see nations raging against God's people. Maybe you think of, of oppressive regimes driving the church underground, killing, persecuting God's people. Maybe you think of what you've read in the last couple of months about ISIS terrorists in Iraq. Maybe you think of the North Korean regime and how it has persecuted Christians. Maybe you think of an African government such as Eritrea where Christians have been baked in the desert. I mean, you can think of all of these persecutions, these horrible acts, and think of the nations raging against God's people. Maybe from a different angle, you think of secular Western nations who perhaps aren't, aren't torturing Christians to death, but are mocking Christianity and deriding its standards of morality it's, as intolerant. Um, in either case, it's easy for God's people again to feel the weight of nations raging against the rule of the Lord and his anointed. But I want, you to, I want you to look closely at verse 3, because the nations are not just raging in general. These are not nations that have sort of get, gathered generally to, to talk about how they don't like God or they're going to defeat his people. There's a very specific goal. And verse 3 gives us this specific goal. They desire to cast away the cords that bind them, to burst the bonds that the Lord has set on them. See, the real raging of the nations is their anger at having to submit to a king that rules over them, of having to submit to the Lord of lords and God of gods. And the goal of all people caught in their sin is to overthrow and to reject the rule of the Lord and his anointed so that they will not have to bow to his rule. Dr. Boyce puts it as he comments on these verses, we cannot understand this psalm until we realize that it is an expression of the rebelliousness of the human heart against God. And not just a limited revolt of some merely human Near Eastern king against David or his successors. The rebellion of all sinful people against God himself. Another commentator adds this, it's not just the political powers of this world which have no desire to be ruled by God. There is scarcely a commercial or intellectual or cultural or individual interest anywhere on earth that does not resent the claims of the Lord of the universe. See, the the psalmist is guiding God's people to understand what's happening when the nations of the earth rage against God's people, when they rage against the rule of the Lord. 
This is never just a political or military conflict over the nation of Israel. Sure, yes, it includes that, but it's not just that. And it is not now a cultural question of the rights of Christians to pray in school or, or, or the legitimacy of our moral standards as, as believers in our country. We're not limited to this. For the Israelites waiting for their Messiah and for the Christian waiting for the final victory of God's King, we need to understand that we and what we see around us is the great effort of every human heart, of every nation to exert its own independence from and freedom from the legitimate authority and rule of the God of the universe in order to throw off this rule, to throw off this authority of the Lord and his anointed. This is the first stanza. Well, the first stanza summarizes the efforts of the raging nations. The second stanza, verses 4 through 6, is spoken by, by God himself. The second stanza uh, immediately confronts the hearts of God's people, turns their gaze away from the toil of the nations surrounding them, and points them instead to look on their God in the solid, sovereign reign of the Lord instead. See, God sits in heaven. And while we might look out on earth and look at the events that are going around us and say, wow, the nations seem to be fairly successfully raging here, when we look to heaven, we see a picture of God. And it's not a picture of God struggling to maintain control. It's not a, a picture of God sort of strong-arming his way and, 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 and perhaps, you know, pausing here as this legitimate battle comes and, and, and you know, muscling his way into control. It's a picture of God who sits in heaven and laughs at how ridiculous it is that these nations would think that they could overthrow the authority and the bonds and the rule of the God himself. A God who laughs at how utterly foolish, how fully preposterous it is to even contemplate that the nations of the earth, that any individual heart, any collective group of people could overthrow or throw off the authority, the legitimate authority of the Lord. See, God is not only still ruling. God's rule is so secure, so steadfast, so sure that it is laughable to think of the efforts of the nations succeeding. I think of how this has played out in history. There's a Roman emperor by the name of Diocletian. He ruled in the 3rd century A.D. And one of the interesting finds that we have from his reign as Roman emperor is a number of monuments from throughout the empire. And and on these monuments, the Roman emperors would often engrave what they consider their greatest achievement, their greatest feat of their reign. And Diocletian is notable for multiple of his monuments claiming to have wiped out from the history of the earth the so-called Christians for having wiped out or ended the name of Christian from the Roman Empire. Yet we now know, as we look to the records of history, that it was in this very period that began one of the greatest periods of growth of God's people in the early church. I think of how this must look to the almighty creator of the universe who who sits and looks down at his created people, the, the people he formed, to... To, to look at them and think that they are small, they are weak, they are soon to die, and they're gathering in opposition to him? I can almost picture it as something like ants threatening to overthrow the bulldozer that might come in the way of their anthill. 
God sits in heaven and laughs at the ridiculousness of the sinful, rebellious human heart that thinks it can overthrow and burst the bonds of his sovereign, secure rule over all history. But, but see, again, I want to call your attention to verse 6, because as with the first stanza, verse 6 takes this broad theme and narrows it very specifically. This is the most important verse of the stanza, because here God defines his unshakable rule specifically. His rule is firmly established. By nature of who he is, his rule is firmly established. But it's not a vague or a general rule. God's rule over our earth over this world over these nations is a specific rule a rule given to a particular person in his king whom he has set in zion to rule and as we see further down a rule that will with a rod of iron break these rebellious nations to to pieces but see it's a promise it's a rule that comes and finds its fulfillment in a person it's a rule that defines our advent hope as we look around us and and as we're in a period of waiting and watching for the Lord's rule to be full and final, it is a hope that comes in a person. It is this king that God has established firmly and victoriously demonstrating his power and sovereign rule over all peoples and all nations. See, this is the truth that grounds our waiting in Advent. This is the truth that grounds the waiting of Israel for the coming Messiah. It's the truth that grounds God's people and God's church as it waits the coming King, the second coming of Christ Jesus. It's the coming of a person. God's people, as they wait through suffering and trial, through rejection and oppression, are awaiting for a person, a King, King Jesus. It's not a general rule. It's not, oh, God rules. It's God rules through His King Jesus. He is the one who defines and fulfills all the promises, all the sovereign rule, all the final victory that God's people have been looking forward to. So stanza one gives us a picture into the nation's plot to throw off God's rule. Stanza two gives us a picture of God's laughing derision at the ridiculous thought that creatures could throw off the authority of the ruling sovereign God, a rule which is fulfilled and comes through his son, the person Jesus Christ. If we look then at the third stanza, verses 7 through 9, this third stanza in 7 through 9 is a statement delivered by, given by this king himself. You hear that God is going to set his king on Zion and verses 7 through 9 are a statement from him. There is a decree that the Lord has made about this king, and this is the decree. The Lord has said to me, says this king, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now if you're thinking in the context of the Old Testament, and you're you're thinking through God's promises to David and, and David's offspring, you can undoubtedly think about 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had come to David and made a promise to him, had solidified his covenant with David and his offspring. And in that covenant, he made promises to David. He made promises that he would be a father to David's descendants on the throne. But could David have ever imagined the extent to which God's promise would be fulfilled? 
Could David have ever imagined that as the New Testament repeatedly declares this verse, this declaration, you are my son, today I have been gotten you, would be filled by the person of Jesus Christ who is himself the eternal son, the eternal only begotten son of God. Come to earth, begotten before ages and then born in Bethlehem, a son of God with power. See, while while Israel waited for a descendant of David, God's great gift to his people was to fulfill this promise by sending his own begotten son, his own eternal son, to be the final full king of his people for all ages. These verses define what this rule will look like. This king will receive the nations for his inheritance He shall break their futile, rebellious efforts with a rod of iron. You can see the sovereign power of the God of the universe has been given to him. And it's these verses that ground the hope of the people of God. The people of God look out around them and they hear these verses declare, all nations are my heritage, are my inheritance. The ends of the earth are the possession of God's king. God's kingdom will extend throughout the whole world. I don't know if you, Christian, ever sit back and wonder as you walk through the daily walk of, of, of your life that God has apportioned you. And you ever think, where am I right now and where is God right now? What, where, what will the end of this be? What will the inheritance be that I will receive? Will I receive a reward and what will that reward look like? These verses remind us what our reward will be. Our reward will be everything we hope because these verses call us again to the breadth and the depth and the final glory of God's kingdom. And that's the hope of every individual believer to reign with Christ in his kingdom. And these verses remind us that God's king, the ruler of his kingdom, extends his rule over all the earth. We hope in nothing less than this kingdom and this glorious king, this King Jesus, as he makes all nations his possession to the glory and praise of his name. I think perhaps the best summary of these verses for the waiting people of God comes from Hebrews chapter 2, where the author of Hebrews reminds us this. He says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, says the author of Hebrews, we do not yet see everything subject to his control, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God we might taste, he might taste death for everyone. You see what the author of Hebrews is saying? We may not see it now. When you look at the nations raging, it may not look like everything is subjected to the rule of Christ Jesus. It may not appear that way to us now when we look around at the events we're facing. It might not seem that way. But we are an expectant people. We are a waiting people who wait with hope. A hope not yet seen, yes, but a hope that is sure and steadfast and already fully accomplished in Christ Jesus. A hope that is this. Nothing is outside the control of Jesus, our King. He will receive glory and honor, and we will be with him because his path to power 
was a path that went through the cross, through death, for your sake and mine, that he might bring us to the throne with himself. What a glorious hope we have in Christ. The first stanza tells us the raging of the nations. The second stanza tells us of God's secure, sovereign reign. The third stanza is a decree from this king of the, of the extent of his kingdom and the promises that God has made to him. Let's look at the last stanza. In this last stanza, we come to a final group of verses, verses 10 through 12, which are again spoken by the psalmist. And it's a stanza of application. See, we, we heard at the beginning... We heard at the beginning that the nations were raging against the Lord and against his anointed. But the psalmist wants to tell these nations something. The psalmist wants to say, nations, you are raging against the Lord and his anointed, but I've just told you some very important facts. I've just told you that the reign of God is absolutely sovereign and secure. I've just told you that he has set his king on the throne and that all nations will be subject to his rule whether that be by a rod of iron or whether that be by coming into his kingdom. So now, kings, be wise and be warned. See, the psalmist is coming back to a message of application. Kings of the earth, have you heard what God and his anointed have said? Be wise and be warned. Well, what's the wise response to God's decree? The psalmist says in verse 11 that the wise response is to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice in him with trembling. This is, of course, exactly what the nations were conspiring not to do, to serve the Lord and to rejoice with him in trembling. So the psalmist wants them to do exactly what they were trying to throw off earlier in the psalm. But see, the psalmist has given us this window into God's sovereign power and given a glimpse of his promised perfect plan. And in light of that, he calls on the nations to reconsider, to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Okay, we might say we're supposed to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. What does that look like? What would it look like to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling? Well, there's all sorts of applications or or directions we could take that, but I think the psalmist is going to give us the most important one. See, the psalmist is going to tell us how we serve the Lord with fear in verse 12. How do we serve the Lord? How do we submit to him? What would it look like to come under the rule of God's sovereign rule and his anointed one? Verse 12 says this, kiss the son lest he be angry. See, we serve the Lord, we come under the authority of the Lord by coming under the authority of His Son. Because again, His Son, who as we know from history is Jesus Himself, is the avenue, is the path, is our only hope to appropriately coming under the rule of God Himself. This, this verse, this phrase, kiss the Son, is, is, a, is a debated translation. It's a, it's, it's a group of words in the Hebrew that are, that are unclear or difficult to translate. But although the specifics are difficult, the general, the general tenor of the phrase is very clear. Obedience to God is primarily seen or carried out in submission to His Son. What does it look like to serve the Lord? Obey His Son. Listen to His Son. What does God say when He comes and declares to the uh, disciples as they're on the, the glorious mountain? This is my Son in who I am well pleased. Listen to Him. How do we serve the Lord? We kiss the Son. We obey the Son. We come under the authority of the Son. 
But I want to draw attention to the tone of this last stanza as well. See, I can just imagine putting myself in this position of authority. If I were in a position of authority and the people under me were, were mocking me, deriding me, were, were behind the woodshed plotting and raging and how they're going to overthrow me, I know that my last stanza would be something like this. Ha! No chance. I've got you. You are pinned down under my authority. Deal with it. In fact, I'm going to pour my wrath out upon you for trying to overthrow it. That's, of course, the, the response of one sinful heart. And it's certainly true that this last stanza includes a warning of wrath, a warning of the final wrath that will come on those who reject the king and his son. But this stanza is not a dire and cold warning. This stanza is an invitation. This stanza is a warning, but a warning in order to invite. It's a stanza that says, nations, be warned. It's not a stanza that's speaking like Jonah, I want to see this city destroyed. It's a stanza that comes in the mercy of God who says, here is the warning, here is the judgment, but repent, turn, come under the sun, because the one who takes refuge in the sun will be blessed. There is mercy, there is salvation, there is refuge in the sun. It is not, a, it's not only a warning. I think one commentator summarized this verse so well when he said this. The key to this stanza is this. There is no refuge from the sun, but there is refuge in the sun. And you see what he means? There is no refuge from the wrath of the Son whom God will set on His throne if you persist in rejecting Him. But even though all of us have rejected Him in our sinfulness, if we will run to Him, if we will come under Him, if we will find ourselves through faith joined to Him, there is blessed refuge in God's Son. There is no refuge from the wrath of the Son if we will reject Him, but there is refuge in the Son if we will come to Him in faith. That, of course, is the great and glorious news of the gospel. If we seek to live out our control, our authority, our desires, to burst the bonds of God's authority over us and do what we want to do, we can expect only swift and just kindling of God's wrath. But even if that's who we were, the gospel declares that Christ Jesus died for you and me. And if we run to him, there is blessed refuge in his blood. The gospel then is the glorious hope. It's the focal point of Advent. The gospel is what God's Old Testament people were looking forward to. And the gospel is the ground of our hope as we wait the coming of our king. It is the blessed refuge in his son. This is the invitation of the psalmist. Are you finding your refuge in the Son? Well, we're about out of time, but let me just pause before we end. Advent has always been considered a season for repentance, a season of examination, a a season of spiritual preparation for the coming of God's King. And this psalm calls for the same thing. You might be thinking, well, wait a second, I, I already believe in the Son. I already do believe in Jesus, and and I'm horrified at the immorality and decline of our culture and the raging nation. So I'm doing exactly what this psalm tells me to do, right? And, and, And yes, to some extent that's true. But let me also just suggest two questions. Two questions for our hearts this Advent season to help us to prepare spiritually for the return of our King. First question, 
In what area of my life might I still be attempting to burst the bonds of God's rule and keep him from demanding my obedience? See, we're, we're all still walking along the path of sanctification. But I think all of us will realize that there are areas of our lives where, where we are reticent, we are resistant to bringing them under the sovereign rule of God. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a habit of, of entertainment and pleasure that you don't want God to say no to. I was struck by a, a, a man who was sharing a story about how he had uh, an office and worked from home in his basement, and I shared this with the teens, and, and, and this man decided, you know, he works hard all day long, so he was going to reward himself. Every hour of work he put in, he would spend five minutes playing solitaire as a break from his work. There's nothing sinful in that, right? But he noticed after a couple of months that every time his wife would come down in the basement, if he was playing solitaire, what did he do? Minimize, right? Didn't want his wife catching him playing solitaire. Was it sinful to play solitaire? Perhaps not sinful to play solitaire. But what he realized, I think this was such a wise comment, solitaire was not sinful, it was not evil, but what he did not want was he did not want anyone, his wife, God, anyone else saying, you shouldn't be doing that right now. He wanted a corner, a space that would not be denied or taken from him. He didn't want anyone saying, you shouldn't be doing that right now. It was a corner of entertainment, of pleasure. He didn't want to submit to the guidance or the rule of anyone else. Maybe, that's, maybe, maybe TV or YouTube or entertainment is our area that we haven't brought under the control of God. Maybe, maybe it's a grudge or a root of bitterness that you feel towards someone that you're not willing to lay before the Son of God who died for you. Or, or maybe it's, it's a need to control things myself and we're not willing to give up control of a certain situation or a certain area of our lives to the one who is in control. Maybe it's fear or worry or anxiety that we feel is, is, is completely justified in our situation because we know the facts and we know where things stand and there's no way anything could, could solve, you know, anyone could solve this problem and we're unwilling to yield the situation to trust the sovereign and faithful God. I don't know what it is in your life, but this Advent will you ask this question, what area of my life might I still be attempting to burst the bonds of God's rule rather than submit to him? Second question, am I ready for this coming king? Am I ready for the arrival of this coming king? See, the root, the foundation for the hope of awaiting people is not, well, am I making him happy enough? Have I earned the right to be his courtier? Have I done enough of the right thing so that when he comes, I'm I'm sure I must be okay? Think about what a refuge is. What is a refuge? A refuge is not something you earn or accomplish. It's something you run to. It's something you run to and entrust yourself to and rest in while it keeps you from danger. And that's the free and abounding grace of Christ. The refuge we have is to run to an anointed son and savior who has done everything that is required and is the only way for us to have hope. So when asking, are we ready for this coming king, we're asking, as I think of the return of Jesus Christ, the coming king, am I preparing for his coming by trying to to make myself appealing to him, to make myself acceptable to him, to do enough or compare myself to others, to put myself in favorable light? 
Or am I preparing for this king by running to the only refuge I have in the blood of Jesus? The whole point of this psalm is that blessing comes not to the one who works perfectly. Blessing comes to the one who runs body and soul to the only refuge we have from the wrath of God, his anointed one, Jesus Christ. So how are we preparing for this king? Is it by what we do? Is it earning a status? Is it earning favor? Or is it saying, my only refuge is in Christ, the Son of God, who came, who is the king set on the throne? Hide in that refuge. Make that refuge your hope as you wait for the coming king. Let me close our time in prayer. God, I can think of few words that could be more comforting to your people than to offer a window into your perfect sovereign rule, than to give us a picture, a glimpse of a ruling, reigning, sovereign king, so that as we look out and say, it sure doesn't seem like things are are all under your control, we yet know by your word, by your perfect faithful promises that you are king and all the nations are under your rule. There is nothing left out of your rule so that as we run to you in the refuge of your son, we have hope. I pray that you would mold our hearts according to this hope, that you would conform us according to the image of this son, for the glory of your name. We pray this through Christ. Amen.